Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Again, good morning. We're really glad you've joined us. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for you. As I give thanks to God for the many blessings of my life, being able to be a pastor of this church is at the top of that list. It's really a joy. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving wherever you celebrated it. Uh, we had um, uh, my mother-in-law, my, my mom and dad, and uh, that's, uh, that's a real blessing. My sister joined us, and Mary did all the cooking, my wife. Uh, I, I grilled some oysters, which were really good, uh, and then I cleaned. Those are my chores. Uh, I don't know what yours are on that day, but staying out of the kitchen is pretty much mandatory involvement for me. You want to be outside? Great. Uh, I don't know how much theology you do during the week, but probably more than you think. And what I mean by that is think Christianly about your life. Um, and there's contemporary, um, contemporary issues out there on theology, uh, bumper sticker theology, I like to call it. And uh, our contemporary culture has a theology of suffering, which is what we've been talking about a lot in the book of 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4, and this is actually the last section on suffering. It's, some of you may be relieved. Others of you, this I'm praying would be very helpful to you as you face difficulties in your life. But the bumper sticker theology, um, you'll know it by what I leave out. Uh, blank happens. Uh, to use maybe King James language, it would sound something like this. Dung happens. And this is the current uh, theology of suffering in our culture. And what that means is, if you just look at the two words there, suffering equals dung, um, or as my mom likes to say, horse maneuver. And, and so that's what, that's what suffering is. Um, and so it's to be avoided because it's awful. Right? It's to be avoided at all costs. It should be, you should try to get suffering out of your life. It is to be avoided and gotten rid of. Not only that, but it's unpredictable and it's a mess. And so you just have to kind of endure it. It's unavoidable. And this is, the, this is what the theology of suffering in our culture is. The New Testament paints a real different picture. Christians have to disagree with that theology because that theology is not what we've learned in 1 Peter or the full extent of the New Testament helps us understand. There's purpose in the sufferings we face. Now, let's be clear. God doesn't cause the suffering. He allows it. And if God is loving, and that's a big if, when you're in suffering, does God is he paying attention to my little life is he concerned about me? Is he good? I believe he is good and he is attentive. And therefore, he's not going to allow anything to come into us or onto us that doesn't have some purpose. So while God doesn't cause it, he does cause all things to work together for good for those who love him and been called according to his purpose, as it says in Romans chapter 8. And so the Christian view is different that there is purpose in suffering. Um, there, and it can actually be a time, as we'll see today, of rejoicing rather than avoiding. So it's a radically different 
theology. And um, as we look at this section, we're in verse 12 of chapter 4. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you, and, and I wrote some thoughts down longhand, so I, I have to look at them um, rather than typed. And, and this is, I want you to understand that suffering is when you receive pushback on your life, you receive ridicule, physical abuse, um, uh, marginalization, you, you're laughed at because of the fact that you're a Christian and because you love Jesus and because you want to do what he says, and those decisions cause people to push back on you, to ridicule you, to cause you names. Maybe systems push back on you um, because you are a Christian. So that's what we're talking about, about today. And so we know that Peter's audience was facing physical persecution. Remember, Nero is in charge. He was a lunatic, okay? He killed his mother. He killed his first wife. He probably killed his second wife. So, so you know, that's, uh, I'd like a divorce. That's okay. I'll just kill you. Then he burned parts of Rome so he could rebuild it. It's called arson. And then he blamed it on Christians. And he persecuted and killed them. So it's a different environment. And so to try to bring this into perspective in, in a way that might relate to you, I just thought of these things. Whenever you make a decision because of your love for Jesus that goes contrary to the, to the norm or the culture around you and you feel pushback, you're suffering for Christ. When you choose, for example, to tell the truth, when doing so will cause falsehood to be exposed. Others might be exposed. When I tell the truth, I will expose the fact that this is a lie. And that might impact other people. And that might have an impact on me. They may hate me. They may push back on me. Or the whole session, oh, I might lose my job, my standing, my place in my community. When you make that kind of decision and you suffer that kind of response, you're suffering for Jesus. When you decide to not steal, when, when the norm is stealing, taking a little under the table, and not, I'm not going to take what's not mine. You know, when I think about the room here, I think we have teenagers through 80-year-olds, uh, and, and the situations are different for all of us. And, and our, the younger you are, sometimes the more your faith co seemingly combats your life. And that's unfortunate. It should always, you know, we should be counterculture. But when you choose not to steal when everyone else is stealing, and they're going to fault you for it, then you're, li you're living for Jesus. When you choose, for example... When you choose purity over promiscuity, the Bible says sex is awesome. It has a place. It has a context. It's in between a man and a woman and a marriage that's committed. Our culture says something very different. Our culture says sex is for any consenting number of adults to be enjoyed at their leisure. And so when you say no to promiscuity, or when you say no to that person that you would like to spend the rest of your life with, and you're choosing purity over promiscuity, sometimes it doesn't go unchecked. The world doesn't sit there and applaud you. People break up because of this. People shun because of this. People ridicule. When you make those decisions and you get pushback, you're, you're, you're suffering for Jesus. When you um, 
decide not to cheat and everybody else is cheating because you love Jesus and you know it would be important to him. When you choose, for example, to associate with the poor or the disadvantaged and you stand with them and you give uh, your ear and your time to them and you're ridiculed for it, well, then if that's motivated out of your love for Jesus, then you're struggling. Your, your, your struggle is of Jesus. When you choose not to gossip, when you choose not to be involved in inner office, inner class, inner friend gossip, when you just say, you can just be quiet, or you might even need to say, I'm, I'm not going to talk about that person that way. And when everyone else is, you're going to feel pushback. You're going to feel ridicule. What, are you better than us? No. No, I just love my Lord, and he's asked me not to talk about other people like that. And so I'm not, right? Does, do you, does this make sense? So these have been my prayers for you and my prayer as we look at this passage today. And you might, you know, there might be some other things that you can think of. And when you choose life, and this is almost singularly focused on women, and I feel a little uncomfortable as a man saying, but when you choose life, Versus death, when the community around you is saying, don't choose life. It's just totally acceptable in our culture today. And so to feel like it's, it's not, I mean, right? It is. Even with the change in all the laws on abortion. But when you say, no, I'm going to do this, and you, you, and you feel the weight of that, because you love Jesus, that's, that's, what, that's what this passage is talking about. So in large ways and small ways, this is what Peter is talking about in this last section. I want to read the whole thing to kind of get a feel for it and then look at it a little bit by little bit. Here's what it says. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, the suffering. To test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of the glory, and, uh, excuse me, for the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or some kind of criminal or even a meddler, which is a gossip and a ying ying ying. If you want to know what that means. Uh, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So we'll start with the first verse, verse 12. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Peter starts with a great phrase. He says, dear friends, it's the word beloved. There's a lot of times we can think God's not in love with me because of the suffering that I'm, and he's calling them the beloved of God right off the bat. Just because we experience suffering doesn't mean God's not interested in us. He's often most closely to us. Don't be surprised when this fiery ordeal, that word is used in Proverbs to talk about the, the, uh, the purifying effects that heat has on uh, metal, 
So you know if you heat up gold, for example, and you get it really hot and it melts, all the impurities float to the top. It's called dross, D-R-O-S-S, and you skim it off. So it's being purified. Don't, don't be surprised when you're, when you're being purified, when you're being, your faith is being tested. <clears throat> and we can intuitively think we should never suffer in this life. That's the common response of our culture. But the reality is, it's not the common response of the New Testament. We are refined. We're purified um, through suffering. Now, the Christians of the first century, they, their life was markedly different than the Roman Empire. It was, you know, you couldn't be an uncompromising Christian. You know, if you were an uncompromising Christian, you stood out. Today, we can fake it. But then there was no faking it. And so they were constantly being challenged, constantly being challenged. And let me say this, living for Jesus is often easily done in isolation when there's no, when there's no pushback. It's when, it's when the culture around us uh, condemns us, cancels us, pushes backs on us that it gets really, really hard. So Peter's been talking about suffering all along the way. In chapter one, he said, you know what? We can suffer because it's only for a short time. We can endure it. Because it doesn't compare for what is to come in our eternal salvation. In chapters 2 and 3, he said, we can suffer because our right response to suffering might really change the way people view Jesus. And now he's saying, we can suffer um, because we follow Jesus. Because it pales in comparison to the glory that we will receive. So in your outline, here's what we have. As we follow Jesus, expect to be refined in suffering. If you have a good workout, say at the gym, you're going to be sore. It's an indication that you've actually done something. If you have a workout like me at the gym, you leave feeling great. <laughs> but nothing's changed, right? I, has not been, I was not refined. And so if, you, if you're trying to go through life and not grow and mature, and you want to stay in Peter Pan land where nobody grows up, okay, then you avoid suffering. But if you realize that the loving God allows this to come on us, and it's going to refine us, particularly as we're living for Jesus. We don't have to become bitter and angry, but we have to just realize that we should expect to be refined during suffering. Why do I say expect it? Because Jesus warned us of it. In Matthew chapter 5, he said, you're going to face persecution for righteousness. He said, you'll be reviled and slandered. In chapter 10, as he was sending out the, the disciples, he said, you will face rejection, you will face beating, and you will face betrayal by relatives. In John 15, he said, remember, if the world hates you, it hated me first. Then when you get to the book of Acts and you see the story of the gospel unfolding, we see what the apostles went through. In chapter 4 and 5 and 12, they were imprisoned because of what they believed and what they said. In chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death. In chapter 14, the apostle Paul was dragged out of town and stones were put on him. They didn't even check it, see if he was dead. He wasn't dead. In Paul's own experience in 1 Corinthians, when he's defending himself, I've been misunderstood, despised, and made a spectacle of. These are not things we sign up for. These are, not th these are things that we spend a lot of time avoiding, except Peter says, if you bear the name Christian, you should expect this. You should expect this. Beatings, being spoken ill of, facing troubles, afflictions, distress, and evil responses. So if we're not to be surprised, 
What are we to be? Verse 13, but rejoice. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. My goodness. Why would we rejoice? One, we're growing. We're being purified. We're becoming stronger in our faith. Two, because we're suffering as Jesus did. Now, let's be clear. We're not going to be hated by the Roman authorities. We're not going to be nailed to a cross. We're not going to be uh, the substitution for the sins of the world. We're not worthy of it, and we couldn't do it. That's not what he means. Jesus did what was right in God's sight, not what is right out there just defined however you want. And put it another way, Jesus was obedient, and when we choose to obediently follow God in the easy things and the hard things, and most of them are hard, if we're honest, uh, really hard, and we get pushback for it, we're suffering for Christ. And what a privilege that is to, to walk in the same steps as Jesus and experience the same thing. What a contrast. And we're not to be surprised. We're not to be stunned. We're not to be shocked. We're to be expectant and rejoicing. Now, so that when Jesus is revealed, we will be overjoyed. That's pretty amazing. Jesus said, you're blessed. He said it in chapter 3, verse 14. So, second point, as we follow Jesus, we rejoice in the shared sufferings of Christ. If we're, if we're suffering because of the decisions we make because we love Jesus, and it's different than the world around us, and we're hated for it, he's saying, man, you should rejoice in that. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are, who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and when they fa uh, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. It's false. It's false. No one likes to be spoken of falsely. Of all kinds of evils against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because of great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before God. So Jesus said, it's coming. Secondly, Peter lived it out. Remember, he was put in jail, and when he wouldn't be quiet, they flogged him. And this is what he said in chapter 5, verse 41. We saw this last week. The apostles left that flogging uh, in front of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been worthy of the suffering, the disgrace of the name. Wow. That's just so different. That's how they left. So not only did Peter have his own life to be an example for what he's writing in this letter, but he had that of the other apostles as well. I'm certain that he was around Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was stoned to death. Steve, Stephen was a man, when they looked at him, he said he had the face of an angel, which means he was completely innocent and pure. And then he started preaching, and they brought false accusations to him. They started accuse, finding people to make false accusations, and he was brought before the Sanhedrin, like Peter and, and like Jesus before. And they said, hey, Stephen, are you going to defend yourself on false accusations? I don't know if you've ever been falsely accused. But if you have, then you know the end game is your dismissal or death. And usually there's not much point in trying to defend what is already indefensible. But you might try. Stephen said nothing. 
He didn't defend himself. He continued to preach, which made them so mad that he thought this mob is going to turn to violence. And as it steamed up, it said that Stephen looked to heaven and he saw something incredible. He had a vision of Jesus. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and of Jesus standing, I want you to notice that, at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus standing. This is where the seated, victorious, risen Christ lives. He sits. That's the place that when you sit down, you say, it's over. I've won. It's done. And Stephen, facing persecution, looks to heaven, and what does he see? In effect, Jesus standing. In our culture, he would be applauding. I need you to have that settle in. What an enormous statement. I think, you know, when you think of this, look at verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of the glory and of God rests on you. This is what just happened to Stephen. He had the, he had the affirmation of the victorious Christ standing as he was dying. Wow. Wow. This is... You know, we've reduced blessing with the, with the prosperity gospel to stuff. Stuff that melts, burns, rusts, and is thrown away. But there is something that is so much more significant in your life and in my life that touches to the heart of us when we are affirmed by those that we love. When, we are, and when somebody stops and says something of affirmation to you, and they call out in you something you may not even see when they recognize something so deep inside of you that they, they acknowledge it and they say, I'm with you, I see you, I see this in you. And if you've ever had that happen, then you know how significant it is. Just think of the moments in your life when the people that you love the most said the most important things to you. They were usually an affirmation about what's in you. That's what Paul, Peter is talking about here. You're blessed. God sees you in those moments of suffering. My, I mentioned my 90-year-old dad um, last week. We have a hard time talking to, well, below the surface, maybe like a lot of sons and fathers. He's part of the greatest generation, which means he doesn't hug or express a lot of affection. Hugging him is like hugging a pole. I do it all the time. So in 2007, in an effort to kind of break through the crust, I found this little book. It's a coffee table book, Questions for My Father. And it's just full of, I don't know who creates these kinds of things, but they're geniuses. You know, it's got four questions a page, and it sells for 15 bucks. You know, but they're great questions. And I went through, and I marked... Um, and I had notes in it. I marked all the questions that I, that I would like to, to ask. How did you deal with your dad's death? My grandfather died on Christmas Day. My dad said I was eight. And he comments. And I just kept reading. and I was learning little bits and pieces about my dad. 
as I went through this book. But then I asked him this question. I asked him who his best friend was. And he told me, somebody I had not met, who I would later meet. And then I said, who is it that you admire most? We were at Crawford's too, having fried catfish. See how, see how I remember it? Why? Because it's so deep inside. And he said, you. And I went, me? And it wasn't one of these moments where he's trying to affirm me. Because they, they don't exist. <laughs> it just kind of spilled out of him. And I said, why me? Because, because you have set a course in your life and you've not veered from it. You've made a decision. And he and I have not agreed on Jesus many times. And I just thought, wow. So I still have the book. I still have the memory. You are blessed I need you to know that when Jesus sees you in those moments where you feel like you're the only person in the room that is standing for Jesus, consider Stephen. And he saw Jesus standing for him. I think that's what this means. Rejoice in the shared sufferings of Christ. He gets it. He was there. He knows what you're going through, and he cares. In verse 15, it kind of shifts. If you, it says, it to kind of, he wants you to evaluate, right? If you suffer, it should be, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal, even a meddler. You know, it shouldn't be for obvious reasons. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. Don't be ashamed, bear the name. How do you bear the name of Christ? Is it, is it bold or is it reserved? Is it front or is it back? Is it obvious? Right? When you go through the New Testament, there's all types of suffering listed. I just want to differentiate between a few. First, the, the, the Christian worldview says our world is broken because of human sin. From Genesis 1, the world broke. It's not operating like God wanted it to and designed it initially because we brought sin into the world. It not only impacts us, but it impacts our environment. And so we endure uh, everything from bad weather to bad health, just because our system is broken. Secondly, oh, and what does God want us to do? He wants us to understand and endure that and know that he's good and on the throne and has not lost control. Secondly, we suffer because there is an adversary in the spiritual life that Christians are a part of. And he's not quiet, calm or indifferent to any kind of spiritual growth that you might be pursuing. God wants us to stand firm, resist the devil. And you do that with the truth. Some of the suffering we incur is just because of our own sinful consequences, right? You just made a really selfish, sinful decision, and now you have bad consequences, and you are, are enduring the impact of that. What's God want us to do? He wants us to repent and turn to him. Some of our suffering is involuntary because we're, we're under kind of a chastening of God. He's trying to get our attention. He's trying to mature us. He might be disciplining us. And then some of the suffering that we endure is because we voluntarily signed up for it. I know when I live for Christ in this environment, when I speak truth, when I, when I draw this line, I'm going to get pushed back. 
And that's voluntary. That's what Peter's talking about. And then there's eternal suffering, which is separation from God forever. So we're not to be ashamed. We're to bear the name boldly, proudly in your outline. If you follow Jesus, evaluate the cause of your suffering. So Peter says, you know, you need to, you need to expect it. You need to rejoice in it. But sometimes you just think, why me and no one else? Sometimes it just feels like God is, I'm over here struggling and no one else is. And he's like, well, evaluate that. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household, with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? He's drawing a comparison. If life is hard for the Christian, think about those that have no I don't know if you've picked this up yet, but because our world is broken, everyone's going to suffer. Everyone has various levels of suffering. We live in a culture where suffering, of course, you know, dung happens, so you do everything possible to not be standing in dung. Uh, but it's still there. It doesn't matter how high your rubber boots go. It still stinks. Right? Makes sense? And, and, and so we need to evaluate. And he's, and he's saying... He's drawing this great comparison. And then he mentions something that can cause us to shudder. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, the church. Too many Christians think we need to start with the White House. We need to start with the church house. That's what we need. to, And that's where God starts. Get your own house in order before you worry about someone else's. Well, what's he talking about here? What is this judgment? It's not a judgment for salvation. It's a judgment about faithfulness. Many Christians think, well, I'm saved, that's it, I got my ticket, I'm good. As if God's never going to ask you about your life again. That's not what the New Testament says. It says that we're all going to give an account. We're giving in a different account. Imagine this. How many people are graduating in May? Yeah, show of hands. Anybody? Come on, y'all. You know it's a big deal, Right? I want, you to think, I want you to think about this judgment as like graduation, okay? It would be a horrible graduation if people walked across the stage like this. Oh, man, I did oh, Thank you. I made a B in that astronomy class, and it was a giddy. That wouldn't make any sense. And yet, at every graduation, there's probably a little remorse. There's probably a little remorse that I didn't do better, but the overall tenor is rejoicing. I'm graduating. I did it. It's awesome. I found a great statement. To overdo the sorrow of this type of judgment is to make heaven hell. You follow me? If we overdo it. To underdo sorrow, the sorrow aspect, makes faithfulness inconsequential. So there'll be those at graduation that sneak cross and they're grinning and they're going, I made it, but man, just by the, the grace of God. And then there are others that may be recognized because they were super faithful. I think that's what Peter is talking about here. He's talking about that moment, but he's also comparing it. Verse 18, and if it's hard for the righteous to be saved to endure their suffering, not eternal salvation, how, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So when, you, when you're evaluating the suffering, is it what kind is it? And you've got to remember, you're not the only one going through it. You may be going through it for maturity's sake, for 
purity's sake, for improvement, but everyone's going to face this. And man, it will be really tough. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, the real suffering is when we reject Jesus. We suffer on this earth and we suffer eternally, separated from God. And then Peter closes out this section with this great statement. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. To commit yourself is to set yourself before him. I've got nowhere else to go. I'm going to set myself before you. You are faithful, you are good, and you are creator. There are many things I do not understand. There are pains that I have that I can't make sense of, but I can believe that you can, and you can work them for my good and your glory, and you're the only person, you're the only God who can, and you're the only God who will. And so I can place myself right before you. That's that word, commit, is one that Jesus said at the end of his life. In Luke 23, 46, as he was dying, he said in a loud voice, remember, he's suffering unjustly, at the innocently, brutally. Jesus called out into, in a loud voice, it says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I commit myself. I'm, I'm trusting you in the darkest hour. When he had said this, he breathed his last. I have no idea what hour you're in, but in your outline, trust God. As we follow him, we trust God and do what is right in suffering. So tomorrow, Monday, you might have the opportunity to tell the truth or lie, and it may be all over you. Tell the truth. Tomorrow, you might be faced with an opportunity to bring encouragement and come to the defense or join into gossip. Encourage, don't gossip. Tomorrow, today, you might be faced again with the option of promiscuity versus purity. And you're, and you're weighing because it's so difficult to live counterculturally. Choose purity. Tomorrow, you might be faced with being honest or being dishonest. Be honest. For Christ's sake, be honest. And you will be blessed if you get backlash for that because Christ knows exactly what it's like to live honestly in the face of adversity, to live truthfully in the face of lies, to live selflessly in, a, in the face of selfishness, to live boldly in a world of cowards. He knows what it's like. It's not easy. Call out to him and say, Lord Jesus, I need your strength to do this. But I'm hoping that you will realize I shouldn't be surprised. God's going to work this. You should realize it's an opportunity to rejoice because Jesus has suffered this. You should be able to evaluate 
whether or not this is because of your own sinfulness or because you're voluntarily entering into this. And if it's the latter, then regardless of the outcome, trust God and move forward. I can't think of all the, all the situations in where you have the opportunity to do what's right, but there are many. There are many. I know they are. I don't know your world well enough to be able to articulate it, but you know it. And you will be faced with it tomorrow or today. But be ready. Don't be surprised. Turn to him. And let me end with this. Peter mentions those that refuse the gospel. If you're here today and you've never accepted the gospel, don't refuse it. Don't refuse the gospel. If you're here today and your suffering doesn't make any sense, it may be because it doesn't make any sense. This is suffering that makes sense for a Christian because they're living for Christ in a world that's not. Your suffering may be from your own doing and because we live in a broken world and there's no escape except Jesus. And Peter wants us to see that. Jesus is the hope for the Christian. He's the hope for the non-Christian. He's the hope for the world. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for our morning. Lord, I know, I know that so many of us face ethical decisions as they're called, moral decisions as they are, Christian decisions every day. I pray now, Lord, that we would not be surprised when we have the opportunity to step out and receive not applause for it, but sneerings, criticisms, marginalization, being overlooked, being bullied, being laughed at. And Lord, I pray that we would have courage, not just courage, but we would not be ashamed, but we would bear the name. And Lord, I pray for those here that have yet to embrace the gospel. What's at stake is eternal suffering, not just momentary suffering. I invite you to say yes to following Jesus. Right where you're seated, just say, Lord Jesus, today, on this Thanksgiving weekend, I want to put my trust in you. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me, that you rose from the dead victoriously to give me life, and I no longer trust in my past and my failures or my successes. I trust in you and you alone for my salvation. I thank you for being my Lord and my Savior, for giving me and leading me forward. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have some little booklets here on the platform saying, saying yes to following Jesus. talks about how to become a Christian. And if, I'd love for you to grab one for yourself or someone else. If you have any questions, you can talk to anybody at the New Here table or even the Next Step table. Let me invite you to stand, please. And we're going to sing this beautiful song, Another in the Fire. If you're not familiar with the background of this story, it's out of the book of Daniel, where a young, young man said, I'm going to live 
for God. I am not going to sacrifice to a foreign idol, even if it costs me my life. And he was thrown into a fire, but he wasn't consumed. And not only was he in the fire with his friends, but there was another one in there that Nebuchadnezzar saw and said, I thought there were three, and I see four. And of course, the fourth is the pre-incarnate Christ there with them, almost like Stephen standing, affirming deep inside their heart of hearts, you have done right. And so as we sing this, consider the fire that you're facing and know that Jesus is right there with you. As you live for him, as you choose him, I don't, I can't go so far as to say he's standing. I think that might be presumptuous, but I still like to think he stood for Stephen. Maybe he's standing for you. Make sense? Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.